Hi, everyone. Um, we are going to get started in about a minute if folks could take a seat. Thank you. Hi everyone, thank you so much for um, being here today. My name is Kate, I will be moderating this session titled Empowering Rural Communities for Food System and Health Equity. So I'm going to start out by sharing some of the motivating context behind this session. Rural communities face significant health disparities relative to their urban dwelling counterparts. And one of the various contributing factors to this is poor health behaviors. And we know that a target for nutrition, that these poorer health behaviors are a target for nutrition education and behavioral intervention. So we are interested in efforts to enhance health equity and transform the food system in rural communities where health disparities exist in tandem with rich agricultural histories and traditions of communal self-reliance. So we, as researchers, practitioners, and educators, must become well-versed in the best practices for not only engaging, but empowering the subset of this population for the sake of both nutrition and food system equity. So here are our learning objectives. They're also found in the app, so I'll just do a quick summary. We're going to review best practices for community collaboration in rural regions. And we're gonna discuss and describe how the social, cultural, political, and economic environment of these communities can influence community engagement. And then we'll also discuss strategies for empowering this population. We have three wonderful speakers here today with us. I'm going to give a brief introduction. First, we have Dr. Betsy Anderson-Steves, who is currently a senior research scientist at the Gretchen Swanson Center for Nutrition. She holds a PhD in public health nutrition and is a registered dietitian. Her research interests include food acquisition behaviors, nutrition security, federal food assistance programs, and the charitable feeding system. Second, we have Dr. Jennifer Garner, who will be joining us online today. She is an assistant professor of food and nutrition policy at Ohio State and a registered dietitian as well. Her research group studies the linkages between food system and health inequities and the potential to reduce such inequities through community-engaged initiatives that link the agricultural, social service, and healthcare sectors. In January of 2024, she will be transitioning to University of Michigan's School of Public Health as an assistant professor of nutritional sciences. And third, we have Dr. Kate Bauer, whose expertise lies in behavioral epidemiology. Her research primarily focuses on understanding social, personal, and behavioral influences on children's eating habits and weight, translating these findings into innovative nutrition promotion and obesity prevention programs. And we are gonna start off with Jennifer, who is, as I mentioned, joining us online. Wonderful, thank you uh, everyone. I'm so bummed to not be there in person with you. We have an almost two week old here at home. So I'm still uh, needing mommy a lot. So anyway, uh, thank you for being in this session. We really appreciate it. Today, I wanna talk with you 
uh, about the Southeastern Ohio food security and food sourcing study that we've been working on uh, since I started at Ohio State actually and use it as a case study to talk about how we've tried to embody best practices for empowering rural communities. So if I were writing a grant, which I did early on in this process, I would talk about how the region that we've been working in while I'm here at Ohio State, uh, Athens County specifically in Southeast Ohio, I talk about how it has a higher uh, rate of uh, prevalence of food insecurity than the national average, how low employment, persistent poverty, and persistent child poverty in particular have intersected for years and years in this region. Um, and, and in so doing, paint a rather disparaging picture of the region, which I think as uh, uh, researchers were often kind of taught to do to justify why we might focus on a certain population or a certain region. Um, but really, these statistics belie the incredible assets of the region. Uh, where you, despite this generational poverty and persistent food insecurity, there are many innovative community programs, a really robust and rich network of nonprofit agencies doing many uh, cool things to advance health equity in the region. And so, um, in other words, the economic environment is, is relatively poor, but there is, and it was and is such a rich uh, social and cultural environment, if you will, in the region. And so early on, it was really important for us to think about the language we were using and continue in some ways to ascribe to the norms of academia when describing a region and writing a grant to justify our approach, but then code switching, if you will, uh, when it came to really uh, discussing the work uh, between our team members, with the community, with our community partners. Um, and so that was one of the first things that we really had to grapple with. So the two programs in particular that uh, we ended up evaluating in this region of southeastern Ohio are called Country Fresh Stops and Community Food Initiatives, uh, or Country Fresh Stops, excuse me, and Donation Station. And how these programs work, I'm going to give you a really quick overview, uh, just so you have some background knowledge. These programs really lean on the production of regional farmers who are growing a, a really nice variety of crops, fruits and vegetable crops, and selling them uh, among various outlets at the Chester Hill Produce Auction, uh, which is, if you've never heard of a produce auction, it's very much just like any sort of auction where you'd have an auctioneer, um, but what's for sale is the produce that's been grown by local farmers. It's a really, really cool thing to see. And then of course, farmers markets, which we're all pretty familiar with. So what happens in this region is one of the nonprofits we've been working with, Rural Action, they act as a bit of a middleman uh, acting as a buyer at the auction to buy bundles of produce on behalf of local stores and pop-up markets that want to be able to sell not only fresh produce, but fresh locally sourced produce, um, but don't maybe have the, the time or capacity to do that sourcing themselves. And they're often uh, kind of counted out of other sourcing mechanisms by nature of their size. Uh, so these are, for example, small convenience stores where, of course, you know, the big produce trucks that go to um, your big grocery stores aren't going to stop. So that's country fresh stops. Uh, and the pop-up markets are, those happen at healthcare sites where they want to have a little farmer's market uh, or, or other similar operation. In tandem with that operation, another nonprofit community food initiatives also acts as a buyer at the local produce auction. 
uh, and also receives donations of fresh produce at the local farmers markets, for example, from farmers who didn't quite sell everything they brought and don't want to take it home, or from buyers who grow, you know, bought something uh, in, in, in a large bundle and don't quite want to use it all. And then community food initiatives host on a weekly or twice weekly basis these uh, giveaways. Uh, that are specifically for local uh, and regional food pantries and prepared meal sites uh, who don't have other sources of fresh produce for their operation. And so they, again, are acting as this intermediary. So these are the two local food system efforts that we were uh, focused on in our studies in the region. What we did, uh, I'm not going to focus a lot on the methods here because uh, uh, one of my excellent trainees, Kola Al-Muhana, uh, recently published a whole methods uh, paper on that in Preventive Medicine Report, so definitely check that out. But know for the sake of this conversation that we mailed postcards to all residential addresses in the region, uh, 18 zip codes that aligned with where Country Fresh Stops and Donation Station were operating. And what this postcard did was invite residents in the area to uh, access and take a survey, either online or via mail. And we ultimately had 841 individuals opt to, to take the survey uh, at, at time point one. And then for anyone with whom we had contact information, we followed up quarterly thereafter. Uh, and hopefully you were able to, our moderator today, Kate Garrity, gave a talk earlier in the conference about some of our qualitative insights from the in-depth interviews we did. Um, so ultimately, we we're working with our nonprofit partners to evaluate these two programs through survey uh, and interview methods. Uh, and, you know, the, the methods and the outputs aren't the focus of our conversation today. It's the how of our partnership. But I do want to share that we generated three lay reports from that work so far, and we have multiple peer review publications either published or in progress. Uh, and so if anyone's interested in any of that, um, please do email me at jennifer.garner at osumc.edu. So what we're trying to do in this work is to embody uh, these ingredients, uh, if you will, for effective community engagement and not just engagement, but true partnership and empowerment. And those ingredients were listening to understand, transparency in our goals, scope and expectations, trusting relationships, awareness of organizational capacity, shared commitment to addressing community needs and sharing power, of course. And it's not that long ago that I was a trainee myself, uh, and you hear these things and you say, of course, this makes sense. We're going to listen. We're going to be transparent. Um, but then it's a whole other thing once you're, you know, leading a research team and leading a project like this, co-leading. Uh, what does it mean? What does that actually look like in practice? And so today I want to just share with you um, one quick example. I'm going to put two on the screen, but verbally for the sake of time to share one quick example of how we try to embody each of these attributes. And I do hope during our Q&A time you all will feel free uh, to chime in about how you've attempted to embody these values or, or other ideas you have. So what did it look like for us to listen to understand? Here I was, um, fresh out of my PhD, uh, starting at Ohio State, new to Ohio, new to the region, uh, and, and really was excited about what was happening, but knew very little. And so uh, what I did when I had the opportunity to hear about the great programming that was going on in this region, I, I asked if I might meet with some of the nonprofits and hear more about their work. 
And so they invited me to come down. And I think originally on my calendar, it was a one hour meeting. I drove down there. Uh, so it's about, you know, an hour and a half from Ohio State's campus. And it turned into an all morning meeting where we just talked and talked. And I listened and took a ton of notes about what they were all working on. Um, and ultimately from that, I had pages and pages of notes and I coalesced it into a summary of ultimately what I heard was five different project ideas. And I went back to them and I said, I'm really excited about all of this, but I, uh, for the sake of transparency, you know, don't have the capacity to pursue all of this with you. Could you tell me which of these projects are your highest priority and let's pursue that together. And that's where they said, we really want to understand whether country fresh stops and donation station are working in the ways we think they are. And so we said, okay, let's write a grant together. Let's pursue that. Well, uh, two years later, we had received pilot funding. Um, we were pursuing this work. We really wanted to do uh, in line with best practices, do some in-person uh, work in the region, data collection, uh, really getting on site to understand what was happening. But of course, in 2020, we all know what happened. Uh, COVID really changed what we could do as researchers. And so I had to communicate to them that we could no longer meet our original research goals and that we had to really change our methods and our aims, uh, quite honestly. And so we had to have, uh, you know, some hard conversations about what that looked like and co-create a whole new plan of action. And really throughout this entire process, as it relates to trust, I think one thing that that we've really worked on and that I would encourage, especially the trainees or the, you know, the younger folks, uh, younger career wise, if you will, in the audience is, yes, I, I, you know, I was a new faculty. I was really worried about is this going to be productive, right? And all the ways we want to try to be productive. But one thing that I think we've always tried to do is to prioritize the relationship over the outputs. And I think, you know, what we've seen from that is that the latter will come, those outputs will come, the reports, the presentations, the papers, um, all of that will come if the former is strong, if the relationships are strong. And so that's something we really just tried to center ourselves on every time we had a conversation with the partners. In terms of understanding their awareness of organizational capacity, I think I would I would add to this and say it wasn't just awareness of organizational capacity, but also organizational values. Um, and so, you know, we had to really understand what they wanted to get out of this partnership and what the boundaries were for them of what we could do together. And so we had dedicated time on every in every meeting on every call where they had the floor to talk about, you know, what's going on right now, are their priorities still what they were the last time we talked, et cetera, et cetera. And some things that came out of this is hard conversations about, for example, our continued work together um, and their, their apprehension, for example, to do any sort of studies where we'd have a true control group. You know, it didn't seem kind of ethical to them. It wasn't uh, in line with their values to, to have a group of folks in any study we did together that would get nothing. You know, so we had to talk about how we were going to navigate that, especially as we pursue bigger grants together. As we uh, thought about what it meant to be committed partners in this work uh, and to have a shared commitment to local needs, we uh, we always prioritize partner needs over our own. And so from the very beginning, one of the things I did that I, you know, I, I would encourage others to do, or if you're in a partner in the audience uh, and you're working with researchers to ask for in our original pilot grant together, 
almost 100% of our budget went to covering the time and the expertise of our community partners. So their, their effort and their expertise in our work. Uh, the only other part of the budget was for, was for incentives. Uh, and I think that they they told us in hindsight, you know, years later now it's been that that was just a really critical gesture on their part, on our part to say, hey, this is this is like we're equals in this. We know we we're covered, right? Um, let's make sure you're covered so that we can all pursue this work sustainably. When it came to sharing power, I think that's one of the things where we can all agree that sounds good. But what does that look like in practice? Um, it, this is where you know, just 100% we tried to engage in shared decision making and co-creation. So really, it wasn't us coming to them saying, here's our methods. It was lots of long conversations where uh, we were making sure our partners understood the pros and cons of different approaches we might take and really understanding what they thought would be best for the region at hand. And so, for example, when it came to the COVID-related limitations we were dealing with, um, they were the ones that helped us to think about how we might pursue a mail-based approach to reaching our, our potential sample. And that's how we came to use every door direct mail, which uh, you might be familiar with as the, the junk mail service of the Postal Service, where you get uh, flyers of various kinds. But we were able to leverage that for study recruitment, and that worked really well. Um, and we've also had really great conversations about grant mechanisms. What, what do we want to pursue grants from the NIH and or the USDA? And, you know, where are their champions? Where are our champions? How can we really leverage each other's champions to make sure our, our work continues to be supported? Um, and ultimately, right now, we're writing an NIH R01 with aims that reflect their specific community concerns. And what I mean by this is, you know, I'm a nutritional interventionist. I was trained to design and evaluate programs with aims, for example, looking at how is our intervention impacting diet quality, for example. Um, and when we went to the community and shared some of our reported back some of our pilot findings, they said, this is all well good, very interesting. Um, we definitely want to continue working together. This wasn't just our partners, but also community members who had taken part in the study. But don't come at us with another one-off nutrition intervention. That's not what we need. We need something that acknowledges that we have much bigger issues here, um, transportation issues and other infrastructure issues, healthcare access issues. Um, and we need whatever you're going to do to see us and see our community as whole instead of just kind of slicing a piece of the pie, if you will. And so that was really, really quite important for us to, to hear and think about uh, as we pursue our continued work together. So I think I've probably already talked too long. But I want to end by saying, you know, ultimately, we could talk about any number of different values or ingredients, if you will. But I think coming back to the whole uh, theme of this conference is important in power uh, to make stronger and more confident, especially in controlling their life and claiming their rights. Um, and so I think that's something that as a team and as a relatively young research team, we're still trying to come back to in all of our work. So with that, I want to turn it over to one of my uh, great colleagues. And uh, thank you again for all being here. All right, thank you so much, Jennifer. I think I have to go through her slides. Sorry about that. All right, and here is uh, Kate Bauer. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us. We were a little concerned being the, one of the last Sunday afternoon presentations. 
um, but we're really excited to share our work with you. Um, so I'm going to spend the next little bit um, talking about our project, Feeding My Families, or Feeding Michigan Families. Um, I do want to acknowledge our project director, Dr. Janine Ali, is here with me. Uh, so this work could not be done without um, a big, big team. Um, and Jennifer talks about sort of using best practices. I think about this project much more as learning lessons. Um, this is my first work explicitly with rural communities, um, and I'm learning something every day. So I wanted to share um, a lot of that with you. I knew that was going to happen. All right. So what is Feeding My Families? Um, so the goal of Feeding My Families is to elevate the experiences, perspectives, and needs of Michigan families by developing parent-driven recommendations to build more equitable and responsive nutrition assistance systems. It's a lot of words. Really, um, where this project came about is that during COVID, as many of you were. I was working with, you know, partners and evaluators and nonprofits to try to get food to families. And as the pandemic, you know, continued on, we started to notice some discrepancies in sort of what programs and organizations were doing to the best of their ability during a crisis situation and what, um, perhaps families needed, right? So there were some programs where participation didn't change in the nutrition assistance program, despite you know massive numbers of families saying that they don't have enough money for food. Um, so we started thinking, what's going on? And in the midst of this, is anyone systematically talking to families? Again, we were all rushing, we were working within the constraints of our ability, but there didn't seem to be any effort to really understand the lived experience of food insecurity and food assistance uh, during the pandemic and, and before the pandemic and now after the pandemic. Um, and so we uh, launched what we think of as a four-stage process. Um, first, we built parent leadership boards. I will tell you, and I'll talk about our funding process later. Um, when we first designed this project, we did it from a very academic perspective, and I said, oh, we're going to have, you know, um, uh, advisory boards of all the nutrition organizations, and excuse my language, my um, program officer said, I don't give a shit what the organizations think. Like, that is not the point of your project. The whole point of your project is talking to families. Um, and so we scrapped the organizational advisory board and we brought in the parent leadership board. Um, and so what we've done is um, engage, uh, we now have over 35 parents with lived experience of food insecurity. And we, they are part of our team. We have worked extremely hard to build trust and a great relationship and we really feel like each other's each other are friends and we've made mistakes and I've had to apologize um, you know it's been tough just like a relationship um, we do and I'll talk about this later in our lessons learned we pay, we pay all of our parent leaders a monthly stipend we ask them for some sort of activity and every given month um, whether it's attend a meeting give us feedback on some materials help us recruit other families whatever it is but we pay people fairly 
Part two of Feeding My Families is that we have implemented text-based surveys of parents across the state to really understand what food assistance and food access programs they're using and their level of satisfaction, what's working and what's not with them. Um, these are all parents who uh, screen positive on the measure of food insufficiency, and we I can, Janine and I can talk about this with anyone interested. We've partnered with a company that collects data purely through text message. So the way that your doctor's office is like, you have an appointment tomorrow, text Y to confirm, our entire data collection was through back and forth texts. Um, it took a lot of work, but it was extremely successful. And we paid families or parents for participating in that text-based communication with us. We then, um, for about 10% of families, did in-depth interviews that were directly related to their surveys. We said, hey, by text message, you told us that you um, are enrolled in WIC, but you're not very satisfied with it. Tell us more about that. What would you like to see? What worked? What didn't work? If you could um, you know, wave a magic wand and make sure that your, food have enough fa your family had enough food, what would that look like, right? So we're asking more in-depth questions. And then stage four, which is where we are now, is to really, again, synthesize the massive amounts of information that we have obtained from Michigan families and um, create policy and program recommendations. Our, we did not have community education as an initial goal. We were looking very much at policies and influencers, but we have realized and we've heard from our parents that there's um, some lack of understanding or lot, there is some lack of awareness or um, misinformation about certain resources, and maybe we have a place in doing some of that education. Okay, so that's the big picture of Feeding My Families. We actually have been so fortunate to be able to launch Feeding My Families in two different ways with different communities. So initially, the Kellogg Foundation supported this work to occur in Detroit, Grand Rapids, and Battle Creek, Michigan. Um, these are all uh, communities, urban communities with high um, percentages of black and brown families, very high rates of food insecurity and poverty. Um, and we've actually, as far as our parent leadership boards, been able to build two parent leadership boards across these communities. One um, comprised of parents that are English speaking. They are I believe 100% black identifying, and one of parents that are Spanish speaking and meet and communicate in Spanish. And they, um, that group of parents did not feel comfortable or you know, feel totally included in an English speaking environment, so we duplicated our parent leader boards. Um, we launched our, we also hired um, three of our parent leaders have come onto our staff, which has been an incredible experience. I'm kind of rushing through this because the urban stuff is not the, <laughs> the focus of this session. Um, we launched our text message survey in English, Spanish, and Arabic, um, and so we were representing the communities in, involved. Um, we, com we were able to get the word out about feeding my families through through all of our community contacts, word of mouth, and we were able to recruit 781 parents to complete our survey and 110 interviews. And you can see here about 70% of this sample um, identified as black. So, super fortunate, right? We had this Kellogg Foundation um, funding, our project was moving along, 
and I got connected to Michigan Farm Bureau, the insurance company. And they told me that um, eradicating child hunger is one of their corporate missions right now, and that I was recommended to them as an expert in the field. So I told them what I was doing, and I told them about the Kellogg Project, and they said, I want in. I mean, this like never happens, that someone <laughs> just is like, what can we pay you? Um, and so we thought, right, with Michigan Farm Bureau's connection to agriculture and interest in child hunger, could we duplicate the project in Michigan's rural communities? Um, so you'll see in the map, for any of you, I know there's like a big Michigan contingent right in the middle of this room. Um, but so Detroit, Grand Rapids, and Battle Creek, the pinpoints are our Kellogg Foundation sites, and the green counties are our rural counties. So we identified 57 rural Michigan counties based on USDA um, RUC codes. And we duplicated our project. And when I say we duplicated our project, on some ways it was like, all right, awesome, we already have a survey made, we already have an interview made. And in other ways, it was completely scarring from scratch, right? And that's what I really um, want to be here and share with you the lessons learned today. Um, so we, again, have a, a leadership board of parent leaders. Our leadership board looks very different for our rural counties than our, our cities. Um, not only that they are all white women, um, but they're actually people um, more so uh, involved in nonprofits in their communities around food and food assistance. They also have lived experience of food insecurity, but um, we somehow, you know, who we got connected to, we were able to tap into people who are already in the food space, and that wasn't true in our other communities. Um, we can't, they all live many hundreds of miles apart, um, and so we can't get together like we do in Detroit and Grand Rapids and Battle Creek. Um, so we meet on Zoom. Um, and what we did was really divided the state into six or seven or eight regions, um, and we set our survey and interview targets equally so um, by population so we could have, make sure that we are getting um, surveys and interviews from across the state in a balanced way. Um, we did only offer our urban, I mean, I'm sorry, our rural uh, survey in English. We asked many, um, many in the community, organizations, individuals, if Spanish would be helpful, um, and we never got enough feedback that Spanish was necessary to make it honestly worth coding the surveys because that was a huge pain. But it was really interesting because probably about 10 of our rural surveys came back with the comments in Spanish. So someone was you know, reading the English survey and but feeling comfortable and wanting to respond in Spanish. Um, we, we got the word out. I will tell you, this has been the most amazing. I think all of our, you know, between the two studies, we have about 13, 1,400 parents, I think we've completed data collection in about two months. Because once it takes off and, if, and someone gets text in, has a conversation with us via text, gets their gift card, they're gonna tell their family, their friends, people in the community. Um, so it was really amazing. And so we've completed 507 surveys from rural, our rural communities in Michigan and 69 interviews. And you know, as would be expected, um, our um, racial ethnic composition of our rural communities and our rural sample was quite different at 93% white. But we, again, we did get 7% Latinx, 4% um, identifying as Native American and 2% black, which we were really excited about. So what I wanna do, my last two slides, I wanna talk first about sort of the content of what we learned about food access and food assistance from parents and what's working and what's not. And then I wanna, 
finish on our process, right? And those process lessons learned about working in rural communities and adapting or transforming our urban focus project to rural communities. So what have we learned about um, our rural communities? First thing, I think, in our first parent leaderboard was talking about housing, right? We're here to talk about food, and they talk about housing. Um, you know, I think, I, I will admit, I'm from suburban New York. I have never lived in a, in a rural community, right? But we think, and you know, Jennifer mentioned, like, agricultural roots history. You know, we think about people sort of you know, still farming the land. Well, the truth of what's happening, particularly in northern Michigan, is that these are amazing, amazing vacation spots with gorgeous, not, not always gorgeous weather, but gorgeous views, gorgeous water, gorgeous lakes. And the housing is being completely bought up for second homes, Airbnb, and it is absolutely pricing people out of these communities. We heard a lot about homeless encampments happening, um, sort of tent cities in different neighborhoods, which is not what you think about, at least for me, when I think about rural communities, but it is absolutely first and foremost. And then the conversations go, right, not only is your money all taken up by trying to afford rent, but if you are homeless or if you are living in a place without running water, without a kitchen, with you don't have transportation, of course there is poor food access. Um, we heard a lot, and this is true, you know, there's a lot of themes that are true across our urban and our rural participants. Um, so we heard a lot about families with disabilities, right, whether that's, um, you know, sort of behavioral disabilities, physical disabilities, food allergies, food needs, um, needing, you know, a low sodium diet because of cardiovascular issues, right? That is absolutely playing into people's food costs and food decisions. And we heard over and over that um, people felt like they couldn't shop for their child who has celiac, you know, at the local stores, or there was nothing at the food pantry for them. So 42% uh, of our rural families were currently participating in SNAP. We asked on a scale of 1 to 10 people's satisfaction with the different food assistance programs, um, and satisfaction with SNAP was the lowest. Uh, satisfaction with WIC was the highest. Um, what we heard over and over, which is the same as we're hearing in Detroit, Grand Rapids, and Battle Creek, the process is infuriating. Um, case management, the case managers can be amazing or can be very difficult. Um, and it's just a really, um, it can be a very stigmatizing and demoralizing experience to have to seek assistance for your family. Um, Betsy and I were just talking, or we were all talking at lunch about online food ordering. Um, we asked you know, whether people would use their EBT cards for online shopping. Um, and we got amazing responses of like, no, I want to go buy my own food, or they don't deliver to my neighborhood, or it takes four, five days to get the food to my, to my home. Why would I shop online? Um, as I mentioned, high participation satisfaction with WIC. Um, many of these families use food pantries. These food pantries are literally you know, a closet in someone's church where the pastor is able to open up a half day a week. It is not accessible to families. Um, and we heard a lot from families have incredible, incredible pride. And they, didn't, they were nervous about bringing their children to a food pantry. They don't want their children to know how bad off they are or that they need help. Um, Half of families reported experience, experiencing mistreatment or discrimination in using food assistance. We heard a lot of eyes rolled when people pulled out their bridge card 
Um, a lot of, you know, struggling dealing with the cashier and getting the WIC food scanned and approved. It's a really, really difficult experience. Um, but overall, these families, they, they are going to work their butts off, all families are, right, to get food for their children. Um, they're going to do what they need to do. But there also was a pervasive sense of, I don't want to take resources away from someone else. And I was just talking to actually one of our participants who also works at WIC, and she was saying, she's like, logically I know the more people that participate in WIC, the more funding we get and the better we can do, but I still feel like I'm taking something away from someone when I, when I use benefits or when I um, go to the food pantry. So those are just a taste of our findings. Um, I just want to wrap up and talk about the process lessons learned. Um, it has been so amazing to include people with lived experience of, the, of living in rural communities, of food access and food, limited food access in rural communities. I cannot do this without our parents. Um, one of the things that really came to the top is our use of language and imagery. Um, so you'll see here, right, we have a fairly white family in our logo. We actually have a family of color in our logo for Detroit and Grand Rapids. But we were told not only is that not, um, people won't feel engaged with it, they will actively not be interested in the project, which hurts our hearts. Um, but it is something that we had to listen to. It was the same thing around, um, they were not interested, there was fear of working with the university, the, you know, liberal elite down in Ann Arbor, they did not, you know, there's a fear people did not want to become involved or trust that project. So we used our Michigan Farm Bureau connections, and that was a trusted source of information to get into, um, to, to build relationships. Um, we heard a lot about far-right militia groups, and I mean, things, honestly, I learned a lot and that I still don't understand um, about sort of pockets of communities in our um, northern Michigan um, area. However, despite those things, um, we, you know, there, again, there's intense pride and we really focused on how so many families are working hard. They are working multiple jobs. They are trying to ends meet, make ends meet. They are dealing with medical issues. And everything that we did was really tried to be a language that was um, asset focused and not deficit focused. Um, we built relationships. You know, I talked to my, my staff who were doing interviews. It was like, you know, this is, this is a conversation. And, you, and we practiced and we gave feedback and we learned from each other of how to be non-judgmental and how to listen and how to be accepting of everything. Um, we really did our best. Um, as far as our parent leaders, we had to be really flexible in how people were paid. For our um, families in Detroit who were undocumented, we are not going to pay them cash through the university. We have found other ways to do it. For some of our rural parents who are trying their hardest to be able to send their child off to college next year, um, we also didn't pay them cash because they were worried it would show up on their tax return. So we found um, non monetary, tangible gifts that the university allows. I've done a lot of work to figure out ways to get around um, tax laws at the university level that I'm happy to chat about. <laughs> um, and uh, just so people know, the texting worked incredibly, incredibly well. People shared with us that they didn't have consistent Wi-Fi in their homes, but they were able to use their, their cell phone. So I know that's always like, oh, do people have a smartphone? Do people want to use texting minutes? 
Absolutely, they are used to texting. And we got amazing responses to questions, like open-ended questions, because they're used, people at this point are used to texting their, their friends and their families and communicating that way. It absolutely was not a barrier to getting high-quality data. So that is my lessons learned that I want to share with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, now we will bring up Dr. Betsy Anderson-Steves. Thank you all so much. Thank you for having us and all round us out today and move us toward discussion. Um, and I will talk about really working with and empowering rural communities by listening to their food experiences. Whoops, sorry. I'm a Mac user trying to use a PC right now. So, um, so uh, thanks for bearing with me. Um, just a little bit of disclosure about my affiliations. I'm currently at the Gretchen Swanson Center for Nutrition. Um, the majority of the work that I'll talk about today was conducted while um, I was at the University of Tennessee um, recently. Another personal note about myself is that I was born and raised in a rural community in Appalachia um, in Ohio, actually not too far from the where Jen talked to you at the beginning of the presentations where she was doing her work. And so when I became a faculty member and knew that I wanted to work um, in populations that experienced health disparities and health inequities, um, and I was headed towards the University of Tennessee, working with um, Appalachian populations just really made a lot of sense to me um, and was where I wanted to be. Oh man, I am really getting ahead of ourselves these days. Okay, so but for those of you who aren't familiar with Appalachia, this is a map of it, it's from the Appalachian Regional Commission. Um, it shows the uh, 423 community or counties that are um, designated as being in Appalachia. It stretches across 13 states from New York to Mississippi. Um, and it's really a, a breadth of um, different communities. I spent most of my time doing work um, in the middle here um, in what's the Central Appalachian subregion. Um, that's mainly Kentucky um, and up along the Kentucky-Tennessee border. And those were those border communities is really where I was working. Um, another thing about this map is that the coloring on the map has significance. Um, and it is an economic indicator with um, the handful of blue communities showing like the, the highest economic indicators, white being kind of neutral in the dark, uh, the pink and, and red colors showing economic, what they call economic distress, which is a collaboration of a bunch of different economic indicators indicating that, that there's just really a lot of hardship in the communities in, in which I was working. So I wanted you to be oriented to those communities in that context, but I think that looking at that map alone, um, and Janet alluded to this too, is that really that um, is a deficit-based approach when there's so many strengths to these communities that, um, that I was working in. And so I wanted to share this slide too um, and, and share some of the assets that could be in those communities. One is that it's some of the most beautiful land that you will absolutely ever see in this country. Um, it's home to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. That's our most visited national park, if you didn't know that fun fact. 
about um, the park. Um, so absolutely beautiful, as well as the community and the people there have so many strengths um, and some characteristics of Appalachian communities um, that are really strong and powerful. And the people that live there is that they have a strong sense of community. They have very strong ties to their families, to the land that they live on and grew up on, and strong sense of self-reliance. The flip side of those strengths is that as you're coming in as a bit of an outsider, I was new to, to Tennessee, um, and, and trying to work in rural Appalachian communities, um, they, there I had some challenges to overcome. Again, particularly as I was working in the space of food access and trying to engage people um, and using federal food assistance programs where again, that kind of help government and help um, helping hand was also not particularly um, seen as something that people wanted to be associated with. I knew I had to really get um, to know the communities to learn um, and listen before I could go in um, and intervene and provide recommendations. And, um, and so that's really what I spent a lot of time doing um, at the University of Tennessee um, as I started to work with these communities. And so I'm going to go through a series of about four different studies that just kind of share how um, examples of how I spent time in the communities, how I listened to the communities, and um, just a one or two high-level bullet points um, of things that I always love to hear um, and surprise me in working with these communities um, and that I learned from listening. And so um, a lot of my work centers around healthy food retail. At the time of this first study that I, I'll share with you, um, I had gotten some grant funding to, um, to work with small stores, like convenience stores, corner stores, around um, promoting healthier foods. It was around a SNAP policy at the time to um, encourage stocking of staple food items. And so knowing going, that I was gonna go into these communities and try to get these stores and small business owners on board um, with promoting healthier food, I was like, mm, I need to get to know them a bit first. Um, and so I, one of the things that I did was I visited, I was working in five counties, I visited every store um, across those five counties took my car and just spent lots of time on lots of back roads to get there. And then we also did a series of qualitative interviews with store owners and managers. So talked with 22 of them. We found some really interesting themes um, that came out of these interviews. And two that I'll share with you today um, is that these stores really felt like they had strong relationships with their customers. They knew them well, they came in often. It was not when I stopped in um, to all of the stores, they knew I wasn't from there. Um, <laughs> and, so, and so, yeah, there was oftentimes um, kind of older gentlemen sharing a cup of coffee, spending a significant amount of time there. So the store owners knew their customers and they had strong relationships. The other piece of this is that the stores felt like they had a strong um, role in their community. They were sponsoring little league teams. They um, had, you know, community food sharing. You know, there was a lot of giving out food in addition to the food that they were selling. So they had a big role in the community. Um, and so that was important for me to know before I went in and, and tried to work with these communities. And actually a benefit in that it was somewhat easier to, to say, hey, let's stock some more staple foods because they felt strongly that they needed to support their community. 
Another study that we did is the kind of flip side of this is that we, we were really interested in food acquisition, got the perspective of the store side, but also wanted to get the perspective of the consumer side. So another project that we did was looking and doing qualitative interviews with food pantry users. So talked to about 20 of these folks um, and wanted to get their perspective about using food pantry, having that as part of their food getting, but also the broad perspective of like, where are all the things uh, or all the places that you're getting food and like, how are you thinking about the food that you're getting um, and found um, some really interesting, but not surprising things. Um, the folks that we talked to had a really strong aversion to wasting any sort of food. Um, and so even if they got food that they couldn't use, they figured out a way to make it useful. So if they got something from the food pantry and they couldn't use it themselves or they didn't prefer it themselves, then they made sure that it went to a neighbor or to a family member. Um, along those same lines, there were really strong informal um, food sharing networks. So they got food from the food pantry, they got food from the grocery store, they got food from um, you know other monetary places where they were buying food or using food benefits, but there was a really strong network of trading food and bartering food and making sure, um, you know, in gaps when they might not have enough food for, for themselves, they would get it from their neighbor, their mother-in-law, and then provide that reciprocally um, when they had an abundance of food. Um, and we're just full of savings, uh, money saving and money uh, or food stretching strategies. Um, and so again, for us coming in to these communities and thinking like, oh, how can we provide help and support? They really have a strong sense of exactly how to maximize their food dollar and their food getting um, in a way that as a person who has not um, experienced food insecurity that I did not have that context to. And so um, as we thought about intervening, are working with people, just recognizing their expertise is really critical. And so I loved the, the one of the statements from this paper was that the, the food pantry users are really savvy with their resources and employ multiple strategies to maintain their food supply despite high levels of food insecurity. So just recognizing that expertise was critical. And so the next two studies that I'll share about quickly um, is uh, as just kind of as trends occurred over time in food acquisition I started to be really interested in online shopping. Um, and so this is a series of studies that my research team did related to online shopping or the shopping experience of WIC participants. Um, all studies involved some qualitative uh, elements. We um, talked with participants, about 50 different WIC participants. Some were actually rural shoppers and some were um, a little bit more urban um, and realized that um, while I, wanted online shopping to be a solution for a lot of people um, that are particularly our rural shoppers had hesitance um, they had a preference for um, in-store shopping that we hadn't anticipated they talked about how there were social interactions of going to the store that they really enjoyed um, they sometimes talked about how it was a little break from their kids or their kind of home life to be able to go to the store and have that experience and talk to other folks at the store um, and they expressed an experience of online shopping, but also a, a dynamic shopping experience where online shopping could come into place for very specific occasions and reasons, but not like across the board all the time, right? So they could say, you know, after, after I have my baby, those first few weeks, like I'll probably want to online shop and not have to go to the store or if I'm sick or if one of my kids is sick or if it's kind of cold, crappy weather out, um, there were opportunities, but 
it had its kind of category along with this other um, shopping behavior that they could still see in store. And uh, just like we did in the first two studies that I talked about, we did a similar um, study with uh, grocery store managers and um, in rural and urban settings. Um, this was actually led by Dr. Allison Gustafson at the University of Kentucky, and it was a study that we looked across four states. So we worked in Kentucky, Tennessee, North Carolina, and New York, um, and talked to 23 different grocery store managers about what they thought about for online shopping in their store, and, and particularly talked in the SNAP context. Um, and so, these store managers, similar to our consumers, they um, identified benefits of online shopping, but they identified a lot of barriers to online shopping too, and particularly our rural stores and brick and mortar stores, so stores that had no online shopping presence, um, they really didn't feel confident that they had demand for online shopping um, among their customers, and so weren't really pursuing at the time um, online shopping efforts. So, um, just as that high-level overview, similar to the other presenters, wanted to leave you with a few um, kind of takeaways. The, I wanted to shape mine a little bit differently than um, Jen and Kate, and so I wanted to put these in the context of getting started of working in rural communities. Um, the first would be, um, as you might be thinking about getting into started and working with, in rural communities, um, is to spend time there. You know, like don't go in like with your data collection tools and uh, and start to collect data right at, at first, but really spend time um, trying to get to know the community, and that way you can just do a better job. Um, being humble and trying to connect. Um, Kate, you talked about this a little bit with the kind of ivory tower. Um, being from the University of Tennessee, I did go into my rural communities and, and say that I was from the university, but I'd never talked about being the perspective of, of being a professor. I talked a lot about football um, as a way to connect to these communities. The good thing about those conversations was that was a period of time when our football team was pretty terrible, and I didn't have to know a whole lot about football to commiserate with the community and connect on that. Um, another thing is to, to partner with trusted champions in the community. I will say the majority of my work um, in rural communities, we partnered with UT Extension in the university, or in the state of Tennessee. We've got extension agents in each of our communities, and they are they often live and work in those communities in addition to being um, the extension agent and um, being out there. So they were wonderful, kind of cultural brokers, right? They could say, hey, go talk to that store owner. I think you might get a lot more out of it, and then maybe that one over here might not be as welcoming to you. And so they were really helpful in finding ways to connect with the community or saying, hey, everybody goes to the chicken store, so make sure you talk to them. Um, and then they also really helped with delivering interventions as well. Um, the, the final two things um, are things I've kind of weaved throughout, so I'll, I'll move quickly, is just to recognize the expertise of your priority population. Like I said, they are the experts of their lives and taught us so much about um, how they navigated their communities and getting food in their communities, which was really critical. Um, and then just being willing to ask those questions, really meaningfully listen when they're responding, and adapt your interventions accordingly. 
So I saw this recently um, in another presentation that I attended. I believe it's adapted from disability justice, but I feel like it really resonates in this space and that, um, that really for as we think about our communities, rural or otherwise, um, if they're not as part of it, it really is not for them. So with that, I'm gonna conclude there and turn it back over to Kate. All right, so first some concluding points. Um, our expertise as nutrition and dietetics professionals is applicable under some circumstances. However, we need to recognize that communities are the experts on their own experience and context, so we have a lot to learn from them. There's also context-specific decision-making, and that's what matters to the long-term health behaviors and outcomes. And given what we know about resource disinvestment in rural communities, it's imperative that we elevate trust excuse me, that we elevate and trust the community's contextual expertise in our work toward food system and health equity. And for the sake of time, I think we're gonna get right into um, audience questions. Um, we also invite you to share any of your best practices or anecdotes with your work in the community. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, I forgot to mention we do have a microphone up here. <laughs> That's okay. Thank you all for your um, great presentation. So insightful. Um, the reason why I wanna um, contribute and then ask a question is um, whenever, um, whenever I was in Nigeria, um, also like a community nutrition interventionist and it was more like the typical Africans. Um, one of my experiences that we do community integration which you didn't really mention it as a concept, but you all did that, like trying to know your community, even before like starting an intervention, we call it entry points, like having meeting with the leaders. I don't know how best the US have those kind of structure, but they have people like maybe the religious leaders or maybe a pastor in the local church, like the store owners like you identify, which is great to integrate the community. And coming to my question, in the context of the Appalachian communities, if I'm correct with the pronunciation, um, what did you do, as I like trying to know the store owners and managers, what did you do to like gain their trust to influence the community members or the consumers? Because I'm interested in the papers, but I also wanted to speak more about how you got those store owners and managers to also be able to help you, maybe it's an intervention with those consumers. You talked about being a focal point for the con communities. Yeah. yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I could talk all day about this, but I recognize that we have limited time. And so one of the kind of additional things is we first, you know, first and foremost listened, um, and then thought about how particularly to, to work with them in a way that it benefited them and their interests in the community as well. So, I, and kind of this broad work that I've done around community retailers, um, yeah, kind of aligning to make sure that they, oh, this is not on. Thank you. Um, and so, yeah, having a one, like I said, showing up and being there and being consistent. Um, and, and also, it was important for my research team to be out there, but it was also important for me to be out there um, and make the trip to see them. Um, and then finding that mutual benefit. Um, the project that I particularly was talked about with this rural stores, um, there was 
federal level policy coming down that they would have to stock a lot more food. And so our um, thought process was to come in, let's help you figure out um, how to make that, those stocking changes and how to sell them um, because the federal policy was really about stocking, it was not about sales. And so helping them to generate that side of things. So those were some of the key takeaways that I had. Any other questions? Okay, well, we briefly have a couple minutes. Um, I don't know if, I suppose we could go to one of our planned questions, which was having Jennifer, who spoke first, come on and relate a little bit to both Kate and Betsy's presentations as far as similarities that she saw with her study and theirs, or experience, rather. Um, so Jennifer, do you mind coming on to talk about that? Yeah, not at all. Um, but if anyone does have questions, please stand up and, and make your way to a mic. We're happy to answer them. Um, what I what I was reflecting on as I was hearing um, my co-presenters is that as we each think about an asset-based approach to our work, again, that's one of those things that like sounds inherently good, but what does that look like? I think, um, you know, I, growing up myself in a low-income rural community, uh, I often heard a religious community, you know, pride cometh before the fall, an abbreviation of the actual biblical quote. Um, but I think what we're hearing in our in the rural communities we're working with is that pride is actually uh, an incredible local asset, right? And so when we talk about someone being prideful, it's usually in a negative connotation. But I think there's uh, this pride, at least as I reflect on in my own work, this pride is an incredibly important asset for us to keep in mind and how to, um, I think, uh, to to help communities leverage their own pride to, to advance the uh, well-being of the collective community and to really leverage those relationships that growing up in a rural community, I always remember thinking it was such a double-edged sword that everyone knows who everyone else is, everyone knows each other's business, and that can be a really good and, uh, and annoying thing sometimes. But but ultimately, those relationships and that pride, I think, are two things that, that we in this audience, um, whether you're a researcher, a practitioner, educator, um, that's really important for us to keep in mind in our work. And so I heard that weaved throughout. I also, as a researcher, heard the incredible importance of qualitative methods. Um, if you are going to pursue research, the, the incredible importance of, of listening and listening in, you know, really qualitative interviews are a structured way of being a good listener, right? Uh, and so I think that's why you see all of us using qualitative methods. Uh, and I would probably never do community-engaged work without some qualitative methods. So, um, but then the final thing that I think I heard multiple of us say is that we can't just be thinking about nutrition and health. So of course, we're the society of nutrition, education, and behavior. Of course, nutrition is what we're all, you know, that, that kind of shared expertise that we have. But I think more and more, we're appreciating the intersection of social determinants of health. And we can't, I think uh, with, uh, we can't, anymore just say we're here to address nutrition. We really have to be thinking about housing, transportation, healthcare, quality jobs, and think about how that intersects in people's lives and in our work. So those are three themes that I heard, um, but I'm curious if uh, anyone else wanted to, to elevate something that they heard and appreciated. All right, well, thank you so much, everyone, for coming. We really appreciate it. Um, if anyone does have questions, feel free to stick around. <laughs>